Welcome to the Hey Chaplain podcast. My name is Jared Altick, and I'm a chaplain with the police department. This podcast is for cops and for everyone interested in law enforcement culture, careers, and wellness. On Hey Chaplain, you'll hear from dispatchers and federal agents, sheriffs, and U.S. Marshals, as well as the occasional local patrol officer. From the LAPD to Scotland Yard, the guests on Hey Chaplain share their own wisdom so that police officers everywhere can survive and thrive. This is the second part of my interview with John Asher, who worked for eight years on the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Apprehension Task Force. He talks about how you can help your department while working full-time at a task force. And this is an interesting dynamic where, as a task force officer, you're balancing relationships among people at the municipal, county, state, and federal levels. He also does a great job of weighing the pros and cons of this type of work. Don't miss what he says about coming back and reintegrating with your department once the task force assignment is over. And you'll want to hear what he thinks some of the advantages are to having done task force work. Here's John Asher. Now, I understand part-time, you're on loan, you're working extra hours with, with, uh, with this task force. But going full-time, that's kind of like leaving your agency. What does that feel like? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird position to be in. It was an adjustment. Mm-hmm. I, and I wasn't a detective before, but I'm showing up at this office and everybody's got desks and cubicles. <laughs> and I'm almost antsy. Like, when do we get started? What do we got to do to get out of here? Right, you know, right. There was one of the old veteran guys that uh, just kind of like, hey, we're going to get there. Slow down. Yeah. You know, It was refreshing in a sense. I wasn't tied to a radio number to a district like mm-hmm. when you work patrol yeah. even when i work swat yeah. you know you you have to sign in every day you have to be on that computer you have to be here you know 100 yeah. yeah. accountability there was kind of a a, a freedom in it in a sense yeah but at the same time the mission was clear-cut like we had our objective outlined for us so here's what we want to accomplish and we were given the freedom to decide how we wanted to do that not being micromanaged and things like that really actually kind of motivated us and Okay. Uh, and kind of it motivated us. We had team leaders we were responsible to that kind of oversaw the task force. But we were we were a group of officers from various agencies, mm-hmm. local guys, state guys, and then the federal deputies with us. And we each brought our own caseload. And we had the freedom to kind of decide and rank, like, what are we going to work on today? Who's who's takes priority? Right. What time are we going to start? Do we need to be out there early? Do we need to be out there late? Is your agency feeding this to you? Is saying, hey, here, here's things we'd like you to bring to the task force? Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, a lot of it boiled down to personal relationships you had built. Okay. I'm a city officer. When we investigate a case, when it um, goes to get charged, it goes through the county. So then the county issues a warrant for that person's arrest. Well, the county kind of holds ownership of that warrant. So... We had to play nice. I had to build relationships with them to know that, hey, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess this up. That they would actually reach out to me and say, hey, a warrant just came out for such and such. Would you like to work this case? That so that was that was one aspect. I would get warrants from the county sent to me, especially if they knew that this fugitive wasn't going to be in our local jurisdiction. Like maybe they had crossed state lines. We're in a different city. We're working or living or supposed to be staying somewhere up here in Kansas City, Kansas, where our task force was located. So I would I would get those assigned to me from the county. 
I would have detectives that would reach out to me and say, hey, I worked this investigation. It's getting ready to be submitted to a warrant. And, and, and these guys are trusting you with their case file, you know, front to back. Yeah. This is, they've done all this work into getting this person charged. And this is kind of the final piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And so they're trusting you with, with, with a lot of responsibility. If the county gives these warrants, you, you sends them your direction and, and that these detectives are asking you for help and you don't get the task force to give them some attention, what would be the consequence? I mean, is, would that ultimately get you pulled from a task force? It could, for sure. You could get some pushback, like, well, what is it that you're working on that's so important? Because this is the most important right. thing we, we have right now. we keep making requests, yeah. and we want the task force to come help. So, yeah. so there could yeah. be some pushback from your agency, yeah, and okay. kind of okay. demand like some accountability as far as what, what are you working on then instead. Okay, doesn't so being take successful on the task force is in part knowing how to keep the folks back home happy with the amount of attention they're getting from the task force. Absolutely. And so building those relationships, managing those requests versus everybody else's requests too, sure. uh, is part of what you're doing. Yeah. You negotiate that amongst yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes there was no real rhyme or reason to it. We'd send, <laughs> you know, two or three people to work, sit on one, maybe two yeah. or three people to work on another one. And it was just kind of like whoever sees their person first, that's where we were going. How much of that work is just opportunistic versus can you give enough attention to make an arrest happen? Or do you need to be a little bit lucky, too? Each investigation is almost case-by-case case basis. Sure, it's individual. Sure. And you have a little bit of control over how you want to steer or direct your invest fugitive investigation. Sometimes it's just old school, hey, we're going to knock and talk. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to uh, do some interviews to develop some information ourselves. A lot of times you may not want the person to know that they're being sought. You know, yeah. maybe times where we just do old school surveillance and it's sitting there hours on end, um, hoping to get lucky, hoping yeah. to see this person. You know, we have to be able to weigh, is this a residence? Is it not their residence? Are yeah. we going to be able to force entry? Do we have to get a warrant? Are we going to get cooperation? And is all of this a good use of your resources and time when you have yeah. other fugitives you're looking for? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some cases we may rely on not to give away like tricks of the trade, but no. we wrote a ton of search warrants for, you know, the sky was the limit as far yeah. as just bits and pieces of information that we could mine from to try to develop locations. Cause sometimes we had no idea. We had no idea where to start. Right. Um, to be honest right. with you. But yeah, sometimes we would get lucky. Sometimes things go perfectly. Sometimes things don't go well. It was definitely a learning experience for each of us. And I, I think I saw the maturation of our task force, the longer I was up there to where early in, early in my career, we saw our guy, we may have jumped out on him. We, we went from that to, I think more professional, like, hey, we can, here's what we know. We can walk away. The person will come back. Mm -hmm. uh, we can, there's a safer way to do this. With the task forces, do they provide any kind of training or other opportunities for you? Yeah, so I'd have to train with them as well. They have uh, particular deputies that are pretty well-versed trainers that they've identified that they send out of state uh, mm -hmm. to all these, they're called tactical training officers. And so they would put on trainings for us. They were really engaging. Yeah, they have high quality. Yeah, they had really cool equipment, like just like for trauma care, like uh, self self treatment of like gunshot wounds and stuff mm -hmm. like that. They'd have these little 
almost like cadaver legs that would shoot blood and things like that. We'd have to turn yeah. it. You'd actually have to put the tourniquet on and stuff them and things like that. Just a lot of like cool equipment that really made the trainings fun and exciting. As an agency, they would invest in you though. As you know, you're you're not a you're not a deputy. You're not a federal agent. But they would still invest in you as an officer in your development. And so I got the opportunity actually. I don't even think I had flown on a plane since I was like 12 years old, but uh, I got to fly and see both coasts during my time with the task force. So they first uh, sent me to a week-long course, an investigator's course in uh, at FLETC, the oh, Federal excellent. Law Enforcement yeah. Training Center down in yeah. Glencoe, Georgia. Yeah. So I went there and uh, it was a lot more case management, uh, open source investigation, kind of, kind of more detective type work and things like that. But it was a really interesting course. I met some interesting uh, people from all over, you know, that uh, had been sent there. That, that I think all had the same sentiment, which I thought was really cool. Of like the marshal service itself really pushes because of the the core mission, a sense of brotherhood. Like mm-hmm. they really preach to be a good team member and to have each other's backs. And then I went to the second training I got to go to for a week was, it was called high risk fugitive apprehension. And so they, yeah, they sent us, it was in Los Angeles. I got to stay uh, directly in downtown Los Angeles, directly across the street from the Staples center. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. You know, we could uh, walk to like local restaurants, movie theaters, things like that. The, uh, training facility was just outside of town but just top of the line equipment they had a uh it was literally inside like a two-story building built within this complex yeah they had like four different entrances and they could move walls around and so we could uh practice all kinds of uh like room clearing room clearing entries barricades they had breaching doors all kinds of cool stuff you could do vehicle takedowns we got to shoot a range session, which was in the mountains, you know, this beautiful, gorgeous backdrop. And yeah. Got some really cool pictures from that. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was stuff. Some neat opportunities. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I built some friendships there with guys from uh, uh, other Kansas agencies and stuff that got to go that, I mean, I think I'll, I'll talk to these people till the day I die. So yeah. Yeah. it was, it was really fun. Let me ask about money. So when you're on a task force, who's paying your salary? Interesting. So uh, your salary is still paid by your home agency. Okay. But the the federal task force will have a certain amount of money allotted to pay your overtime because it's expected that you're going to work overtime okay. because of this assignment. The formula may be different based off of like what your base salary is. Like, you know, one, one uh, task force officer may make different than another. Right. Right. But um, it was basically expected for you to spend it or use it. Like they okay. expected you to stay late. And uh, I'd put in my regular overtime, but then the, the marshal service would pay them. Now, Okay, so they never, you're working overtime, but your department didn't have to pay for that. Correct. They got reimbursed. Reimbursed for it. Okay. And it was kind of a, it was almost like a use it or lose it. Like they expected you to meet that threshold. Otherwise, okay. the, the allotment would be less the next year. And sure. It always kind of worked out to where, you know, we'd inherently have a case that would take a while or take us outside of town or something mm-hmm. like that, that would eat away that money. Sometimes we had no money to spend. Other times, you know, we're trying to stay late, like, and we're trying to, you know, beg the marshals to stay yeah. with us because they don't, yeah. they don't have that. They, they'd call us the TFO mafia and say we were trying <laughs> to shake them down for funds and things like that. But, uh, how long were you in task forces? So I, I served for eight years. I did four years part-time and then four years full-time. Is that a typical amount of time? Is that longer than usual? So I think it's, 
it's dependent on the agency's policy and maybe practices. Okay. Um, for us, typically you get a five-year full-time rotation is kind of the standard. Okay. Um, usually um, these positions will be announced and you have to apply for them. So okay. the, you put okay. in like a, a, a transfer request, um, and, you know, stating your intent to, uh, to fulfill this position. And then they, they'll do interviews and we call a career board mm-hmm. um, where a panel will go over your merits and then they make a decision based off that. There are some agencies, um, if I'm aware of this right, that may bid that job, that task force job, based off of just seniority. Okay. And uh, guys may get to stay in that for as long as they have no competition. Nobody else wants to come into it as long as right. they're being productive. Um, so I think it varies. Uh, some of the state guys from the uh, Department of Corrections are kind of just automatically assigned to the task force. And as long as they're in that position, they're ancillary duty is with the task force. Okay. From a career point of view, let's talk about some of the pros and cons. What you're describing sounds fun. It sounds productive, at least at times. Uh, It sounds pretty satisfying. And I can imagine a lot of officers being interested, if not in the task force, or at least interested in that type of work. You know, if they can get that on the local SWAT team or some specialized unit somewhere else, I'm, I'm sure they'd be really interested in it. But does everybody... Does it always work out for people on task forces? What are some of the things that you know, they don't tell you when they're recruiting you to a task force? So I think the th- biggest con is you, you have to be available for it. It's 24-7. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be called out at any time because uh, somebody has a, there's a major incident and people need help. Um, you may have got a tip on a guy. There may have been an escape from a prison. There are the different things that we would work on. That's hard on family. That can definitely be hard on family. So the hours can be really, really demanding. It may be just coming in early to set up on a surveillance or an mm-hmm. operation. It may be staying late when that wasn't planned. A lot of times we would uh, not have any notice and we would just decide, hey, we've been, we've invested a ton of time into this, just waiting on this person to show themselves or a, a car we know is supposed to come or drop somebody off that we're going to stay here all night, you know. And, you, and your family wouldn't have any idea that that was going to happen. Yeah. We'd say, uh, we'd use a, say, in for a penny, in, in for a pound yeah. would be a quote yeah. we'd use. Or uh, the marshals themselves, their overtime is built into their salary. Okay. So they're kind of expected that, hey, overtime's going to come and go, but they're already uh, paid for it. So right. Right. They, they refer to that as leap. So we'd always joke with them and tell them, well, hey, you, guess what, guys? Leap's authorized. You can stay yeah. late. You know, you're, you've already got paid for this. You know, that that saying Federal Fridays where they, you know, they think the feds take Fridays off. Well, we would inherently stir something up late on a Friday. And so we had one guy that was affectionately referred to as Friday Night Mike. And those guys hated him because we'd always stir something late. But So it, the schedule could be difficult. Schedule could be difficult. And like for me personally, I, I wanted them to feel like I was dependable mm-hmm. and that I was a contributor like i you know i love being a part of the team that team environment so you have to make yourself available to that that did mean that i'd sacrifice you know time with my kids we'd sit around and joke that you know we hadn't seen our kids in a couple days a few days you're gonna you're gonna miss events for me personally having kids my wife um just at the time she happened to stay home if she had been um, pursuing a career or something else i don't know how effective we would have been managing yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I owe her a ton because, you know, she would uh, be the one that was running them around and gave me that ability 
to kind of stay and do those things. Yeah. We had shifts where it would be 24 hours even, you know, mm-hmm. and it, we've been on this manhunt in the middle of the state and it's, you know, six in the morning and I'm yeah. trying to drive home. So at the same time, because of the, the type of offender we're going after, you know, your family's inherently going to worry about you yeah. because of that danger. They're dangerous people. You know, yeah. not that anytime you put the badge on, they don't, they don't wonder and they're not concerned. Um, but you're specifically going after specifically the most dangerous. going yeah. after. I think in 2020 alone, uh, our task force closed something upwards of 50 homicide or attempted homicide cases. Okay. Where I was, That's a murderer a week. Yeah. Where I was, yeah. uh, you know, a primary officer either with a ballistic shield or a point guy, you know, yeah. calling these people out to us. I'm stopping them in cars, you know. So they knew there was a danger involved. What I would tell my wife was... I would try to reassure her that there was a benefit in that we knew what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. It, this wasn't a surprise. This wasn't just a traffic stop that yeah. went awry. You had um, more control we had, than a lot of other law enforcement scenarios. Absolutely had more control. Yeah. We would be outfitted with uh, the appropriate gear, enough yeah. people, things like that. We really tried to use surprise to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, what we call like OODA loop and effect that's, yes. that... Uh, suspects decision-making process and we just try to overwhelm them you yeah. know before they could come up with a plan to run to fight back and things like that and what i always told the guys with my especially my four years full-time they had gotten into four shootings i think when i was part-time and i was i was on scene for one of those but my four uh years full-time no shootings and i told them i said that was a huge testament to just well, the planning. And, yeah. Our yeah, planning, yeah. our cohesiveness as a group, our training, our abilities. I think other officers and different mindset, something bad really could have happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? One other negative that I'm interested in is being away from your department. You're not in the station or headquarters anywhere else with yeah. your department. So your department's life is going on and people are being hired and retiring yes. and all of this is happening while you're... 20 miles away. Yeah. So I saw it both ways. There were people that you worked with pretty consistently, whether it be detectives, uh, investigation sergeants. I had people put me in for like uh, a merit bonus and things like that because they knew the work we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of your direct supervisors knew, yeah. but everyone else just sees you as kind of out of pocket. Yeah. And om- yeah. almost like you're on vacation or something. You know, I'd stumble <laughs> for across. For eight years. Yeah, eight years. <laughs> I'd stumble across somebody and they say, yeah, are you still in uh, the task force in Kansas City, Kansas? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and they're like, oh, well, that's a great place for you. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? <laughs> so not everyone saw the benefit of your work or kind of mm-hmm. realized what you were doing. Sometimes, unfortunately, they only saw like the worst of the worst because there were certain situations that you had to, re- you know, report back where yeah. maybe somebody got bit by a police dog or we got involved in a shooting or heaven forbid our vehicles got crashed and I needed right. it. It's only been 48 hours and I need a new bumper again on my car <laughs> or things like that. So sometimes people weren't always aware of what you were up to, what you were doing. They, they maybe felt that you were absentee. Yeah. And, uh, that's hardly fair. You're, you're bringing in all these extra resources to help us stuff, but, yeah. but you're not there every day. Yeah. And so there's accountability questions that come up for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, personally, myself, I would, even though it wasn't asked of me, I kept, like, a rolling list of, like, my case assignments and everything I worked on. So, Like a log? Yeah. I'd keep this Google document uh, spreadsheet where here's all the cases I was personally assigned, 
here was all the cases as a task force that we were closing and arrests we were making. And then I'd have another sheet where I just put in like maybe daily notes of like, hey, we did surveillance on X, Y, and Z case. Mm -hmm. I wrote a warrant for such and such case. I had to research uh, A, B, and C, new case assignments, Mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, Again, it wasn't asked of me, but I I just, because of that, because you're away from everything else going on, you want, uh, I wanted to, I didn't want anything to come back on me or people say, hey, you're not, yeah, you know, why do you get this? Why do you get a take home car? And why do you get this, um, you know, all these cool things? What What's so special? What What is it up to that you're up to? Yeah. You know, I think I worked like directly related to my city or county those four full time years. I worked like 242 cases. Yeah. So yeah. pretty busy, pretty, pretty impactful. Yeah. But often happening outside of what your all your coworkers are seeing on a daily basis. Yeah. And so that's that's tough. It was it was interesting for me personally because I was on the SWAT team. I was still subject to call out with my home agency 24 hours a day, seven mm-hmm. days a week. I was also on the dive team too, uh, underwater recovery and rescue, so that we would get called out for that. But to maintain those certifications, those teams require, we have to do almost weekly training. So mm-hmm. uh, we would do like SWAT tactics, arrange day, and our specialty day. And so I, I had a balance. Home. Yeah, I had to balance right. both. So okay. almost every Wednesday, I'd have to go back to my home agency to train. Of course, I'd get some pushback from the marshals, like right. the dive training. They refer, you know, uh, refer to me as like my rubber boots training or something, you know, <laughs> silly. But uh, you know, it was hard if I was in the heat of uh, some investigation in the middle of something to to pull away, and vice versa. Like, right. Right. Uh, there was guys at work that. I'm with now on the SWAT team that I missed when they first came over. Mm-hmm. I miss building some of those like base personal relationships that I see them having with other people. So you're yeah. kind of playing catch up. Yeah. And now you're back at your police department looking to promote. And so you're going to have a whole, I mean, generation yeah. of officers yeah. that have been at your agency for years now, but they're basically new to you. Yeah, there's a we have a roll call list or basically this big photo on the wall of every officer within the agency. Yeah. And it's almost like everyone 10 years or newer, I have no idea who they are. Yeah. Or I've never even met yeah. them before. Yeah. I don't know their names. I, I don't recognize them. For me, coming back was probably the most difficult adjustment. Okay. You know, you don't, it's not something you think about at the time when you're on the task force of like, Hey, eventually this is going to come to an end. Mm-hmm. Is it really? Is there something I need to do? Prepare for this mentally, or um, to set myself up for that? You know, you may have a a nice job you're going back to. You may go back to like investigations or something that aligns with what you're doing anyway. Right. You know, I went back to the SWAT team, which is still exciting. Most people would say, "Hey, that's yeah, that's a phenomenal, it's a work. desirable position." Yeah. But it's still not not to talk despairingly about like patrol work. But it it seems more mundane. You're just you're not quite yeah. as busy. It's a different tempo. It yeah. it's a different tempo. It's because of the magnitude of the cases that we got to be involved with. It's hard to match that feeling of importance, like on your day to day level. Um, sure. Sometimes I'd say you feel like maybe your experience isn't being used to its fullest potential. Mm-hmm. Um, there you'll see calls that happen guys to take off and things like that you think this is this is my perfect opportunity to go after this person but you don't have that authority anymore you right. know yeah. you don't have control over that you just, 
it's a big adjustment. It's like you've lost a little, in a sense, you've lost something, you know, like some yeah. uh, tool out of your toolbox, you know, yeah. like yeah. you're almost being confined or, or your hands tied a little bit. Well, let me ask you about the positive then. So let's say a few years down the road, you're you're a sergeant in patrol, perhaps. Yeah. And you've got these young officers that do not have the kind of experience you have. Yeah. I mean, what do you feel like the task force gave you that is going to add to your leadership of those patrol officers? So, yeah. So I know you and I were talking about how I, I just put in for promotion. And it's because uh, that sense of fulfillment I've always had with the job. I didn't want that time on the task force to be have that sense of like, that was the most accomplished I'd ever been in my career. Okay. You know, I, I know there's still like a ton more I want to do. Yeah. And it may be like you say, mentoring new officers, um, teaching them, showing them the right way to do things. Obviously I've seen, um, cases from, from end to end. I know what it takes to like, you know, su- successfully prosecute one mm-hmm. of these serious crimes, um, to catch this person. So you've seen the big picture seen the from big a picture. point of view that they've never seen. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as far as my personal task force experience, as the case agent, a lot fell on your plate, especially when it came time for like to do a takedown. We'd have to do this operational planning. And I think that I think that operational planning probably is the most beneficial towards um, a supervisory role. Mm-hmm. So there was so many contingencies that we'd have to plan for during a case. It would, you know, are we going to hit this house? Can we make entry in this house? Do we need a warrant? How are we going to do this? We're we going to surround a call out. Can we safely clear this? Or do we need other resources here? You know, is there evidence that we need inside? And maybe it's not even that. Do we wait for them to come out? Uh, how do I get everyone on my team in position staged if we're going to do a takedown outside? Yeah. How do I get position units in position to maintain a perimeter? Yeah, you've got real-world experience yeah. in the planning side of yeah. things that most most police yeah. sergeants I haven't mean, had an opportunity it's to It's just simple yet. things like, do, yeah. we, do we worry about the security of the neighboring houses around us? Just making those quick calls, those quick decisions. Do yeah. we let this car go? Do we follow it and take it down somewhere? Like, is there a safe place to do that? You know, that's extremely difficult to orchestrate. Or do we make, wait for it to come back? You've mentioned the OODA loop earlier. Your task force experience is causing you to to go through that process and make those decisions quicker yeah. at a higher rate than than would otherwise be the case. We could do the, the sports comparison mm-hmm. where they talk about the speed of the game, right? So as athletes move on to the next level of competition, that's always the most difficult thing for them to adjust to, whether yeah. it's you know high school level to college to the pros, it's always like things just move too fast and you got to, yeah. you got to account for that. And that only comes from experience, right? You and I played fantasy football together. You want yeah. that third year receiver yeah. that's going to break out because yeah. he's got some experience under his belt. Those, those things take time. I do think that things have slowed down for me because of that experience. Um, it's just easier to process in like a crisis situation. You know, I, I know, like I see what the ultimate resolution should mm-hmm. be. And I know like the methods that we need to do to uh, realize that and accomplish yeah. it. I kind of I kind of pick up on those things quicker. So I think there's a sense of um, composure and calmness. Like I don't I don't get as rattled as easy when mm-hmm. I'm on scene. I know I've had officers tell me like we love having you come to a call because it makes it makes us feel more confident. Yeah. Because we know like hey we're gonna we're gonna make the right decision. We're we're gonna do it safely. Um, 
do it appropriately, and yeah. everyone's going to walk away from your suspect and officer in, in, in a better situation. I appreciate John coming in to talk about the work that he did in task forces. This topic is obviously meant to help with your career decisions, but being a great cop is more than just the unit that you're in or the assignment that you get. Always pay attention to how you develop your character. John and I have been playing pickup basketball together every week for about 10 years. Competition does not always bring out the best in people. But John has always proven himself to be good-humored and humble and a fun person to be around. But he's also one of the cops I've heard some of the most flattering things about from other cops. Your fellow officers will respect a cop who's intelligent, helpful, aggressive, street smart, and a hard worker. Do what you can to develop those kinds of traits, and the career opportunities will start to fall your way. On the next episode of Hey Chaplin. I had been in there maybe three months and went up on a wiretap for a meth dealer out of Escondido, California, bringing in large quantities of, of meth. And we're, we were able to take him down. Uh, and that virtually did away with our meth uh, for a long time. Oh, wow. We, we uh, The next thing that came in was a crack cocaine with the gangs out of Wichita and even Oklahoma City and Kansas City. They found open territory here in Reno County. And I worked cocaine almost specifically for three, three and a half, four years and took down some major dealers uh, again out of Wichita, Kansas City and Oklahoma City. You can really help me out by going to Apple Podcasts and giving me a five-star rating and review. This will help other cops find the show. The views expressed here are the personal views of the host and our guest and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. If you like this episode, please share it with a cop or someone who loves a cop. Thank you for listening to Hey Chaplin, and as always, pray for peace in our city.